Isn't it grand to be able to come together this Lord's Day morning? Today's the fifth Sunday in May, in fact, the last day of this month, and how good God has been to us. The month of May is often a very exciting one in many ways. There are graduations and other activities in, in this world, including weddings and other things, and how sweet it is that, of course, we on the first day of the week can assemble as God has directed us and commanded us and have the assurance that when we worship Him in spirit and in truth, that He not only will be pleased with that worship, but you and I will be so greatly edified by it. As we come to this part of our worship today and give consideration to that section of verses that, that Andrew read just a moment ago from Luke 14, you may notice the title on the wall to my left, He Cannot Be My Disciple. In many ways, a very challenging statement, isn't it? You and I will develop that somewhat interestingly, I hope, as we look at that set of verses in just a moment. I did want to use just a moment, if I might, to make an additional statement. I failed to convey this to, to Brother Gary as he made those announcements, but it is on the, the slide, so if you've been watching the wall somewhat before the services begin. Uh, this particular week, I've been invited to be a part of a couple of vacation Bible schools as the auditorium speaker. Uh, tomorrow night, I'll be at the All Good Church of Christ at 7 o'clock. And so if you would, keep that in your prayers. If you have opportunity to come and be with us, we'd be delighted to have you. Furthermore, Wednesday evening, I'll be at the Carthage Church of Christ. They're speaking as a part of their vacation Bible school to the auditorium class. Our elders have uh, given, given their approval for me to do that. And I certainly appreciate so very much your kind thoughts and prayers in regard to all of those activities. But with those in mind, many of the topics this week, really at each one, will touch the concept of faith. And not only that, it will touch the development of it in hopefully some rather interesting Old Testament ways. And that's all I'll say about that with the hope that if you can, you'll come and be with us. He cannot be my disciple. These opening thoughts, I hope, will prompt our thinking relative to the seriousness of passages, nowhere, wherever they may be found. But surely this one intrigues us. We know from their study of the Bible that being a disciple of the Lord is of ultimate and basic and fundamental importance. So much so that I've asked you to consider the basic meaning of the word disciple is simply one who is a learner, one who is a pupil, one who is a follower. And many times you and I find that word and its associated description within the pages of the New Testament. 272 times that word expressly occurs. The first one is in Matthew 5 in which Jesus went to that mount and there delivered that Sermon on the Mount to His disciples. The last occurrence in Acts 21 again has to do with those who had chosen in great fidelity to follow the Master. Now, even though the last occurrence is in Acts 21, it seems as though virtually every verse and every chapter is a description of those who have relinquished and submitted their life to following Jesus. Being a disciple ultimately is so significant that, of course, our entrance into heaven will depend on it. You'll notice at the bottom of that slide... No wonder then it's a bit shocking when you and I encounter Jesus Himself speaking of somebody and saying, He cannot be my disciple. Who is the He of this passage? Who is it that cannot be a follower of Christ? Who is it that is not an appropriately designated pupil or learner of Him? You and I, of course, should 
notice with care what Jesus said. For if we find ourselves in that circumstance, we need to make change at once. We need to make those appropriate and necessary changes immediately. We'll notice four different characteristics of those who Jesus said cannot be by disciple. I hope all of us then can be of a mindset to ask, do I have this characteristic? Do I tend to have it? And I think we'll find that what Jesus said is a very prompting thing because the devil seemingly ensures that these are going to be serious matters. The opening slide then of our lesson will develop like this. Let's first build an appreciation for the passage itself. In what context did Jesus make these statements? And once we appreciate that more carefully, then we can look at the specifics of the passage. You'll notice it all begins in verse 1 of Luke 14. Jesus on that occasion had gone to the home of a Pharisee and there enjoyed a meal with that man and no doubt some other guests. And as our Savior had gone to that place, we notice a number of developments occur. First, there was one who had dropsy that Jesus encountered while there. Jesus healed that man and that prompted an interesting conversation. There were some of those Pharisees rather upset that Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath day. Jesus used that occasion to teach some powerful truths about how much greater a human is than an animal. And He did that by asserting, if an animal falls into a ditch on the Sabbath, won't you help it out? Here is a man who had a very serious disease and I have healed him. And Jesus rebuked them for their attitude of lack of concern and for their lack of failure of the seriousness of what it, the Sabbath was and what it was not. But in addition to that, you'll notice the Lord taught some remarkable and unforgettable truths. There was the parable of the wedding guest. You and I remember that Jesus spoke about this particular wedding scenario in which this wedding guest, and there you'll notice it in verses 7 and following, some who were invited, you find that as a result of that invitation, Jesus taught about what occurs. Following that, He taught about this. The parable, as I've called it, of the Great Supper. You'll notice that this one has to do with a bit of excuse. There was an individual who again made preparation of this marvelous and great feast. And as all that took place, the time came when the moment of enjoyment of that feast had arrived. The master then sent out his servant. You go and bid the people to come who I, to whom I've sent invitations you'll notice that they begin to make excuses. One of them said, I've bought a parcel of ground and I have got to go and see it. Please have me excused. On the other hand, another one said, notice verse number 20, or sorry, verse number 19, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I've got to go prove them. Please excuse me. Thirdly, there was a man who in verse number 20 said, I've married a wife and so I cannot come. All three individuals, you'll notice, made an assertion, be it acquiring a piece of ground, be it marrying a wife, be it, in fact, buying five yoke of oxen. Please excuse me, I cannot come. You'll notice all three of them, in one way or another, made some excuses. And Jesus, thus, will have much to say in these verses to follow, the heart of our lesson today about the possibility of making excuses. Are there times when you and I are quick to make excuse? 
Are there times we, in fact, jump at the possibility of excusing our failures and our sins by making excuses? You'll notice in that parable, the Lord didn't accept excuses. But maybe with it, we could appreciate this. That does bring us immediately to verse 26. Although that was read a moment ago in our hearing, please note it with me again. Luke 14, verse number 26. If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. In the aftermath of these parables and in the midst of this group of people who no doubt were able to learn much from what Jesus said, he made this amazing statement. It is the case as you come to the bottom of that. We're now about to see, interestingly, Jesus making that statement four times. Four different individuals, he says, cannot be my disciple. And in the course of that, he will say much about your excuses and maybe mine. And he will say much about the fidelity and the dedication that must be characteristic of our service to him. With that in mind, let's now build the specifics of the passage, shall we? You'll notice the first category is this one. That very verse we just read. He says again, If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, he cannot be my disciple. One of the first considerations that challenges you and me is the appreciation of a passage like this one. Namely, what does it mean, he says, to hate your father and your mother, to hate your brothers and your sisters? For after all, if whatever the Lord said, if I don't in some way hate them, then I can't be His disciple. That seems to run counter to so many other verses, doesn't it? We're told all throughout the Bible the necessity of loving our wife. Aren't husbands told? Husbands, love your wives, Ephesians 5.25, even as Christ loved the church and gave Himself for it. Now how does that verse harmonize with this one? And wives are told to love their husbands, Titus 2 verse 4. Parents are taught to love their children, many passages from the book of Proverbs. May we again say there's no contradiction in these ideas. It is a very interesting usage, isn't it, of the way in which Jesus employed that word hate. I would ask you to develop it like this. The actual word in the original language here is miseo, M-I-S-E-O. And you'll notice that word can be used with some interesting usages and connotations. I'd submit that the finest commentary on this one is found by looking at a sister passage. Matthew's version of this same passage says it wonderfully. Please compare Matthew chapter 10 verse 37 with me. Matthew the 10th chapter verse number 37. In this context, again, Matthew's version of this same remarkable series of truths. Matthew wrote the words of the Master like this, He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And following that then are the same context that we've just noted in Luke chapter 14. That word, Maceo, has as one of its potential usages not to hate in the way we often use that word today, but to love to a lesser degree, or that is to say, to love less. 
that would be the thrust, the emphasis of this passage in Luke 14, wouldn't it? Jesus thus makes the statement to you and to me alike. Verse number 26, He that loves father or mother more than me cannot be my disciple. He that loves son or daughter more than me, he that loves brother or sister more than me cannot be my disciple. The thrust of that word hate here is then to basically love less. And as you and I appreciate it, we understand the beauty then of what the Lord is asserting. He must be the absolute and full Lord of our lives, and I've stated it as single-minded loyalty. Borrowing the presentation of Matthew 6.24 to highlight that idea. No man can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he'll hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in mammon, Matthew 6.24. As you and I think about the Lordship of Christ, we understand the beauty and the blessing of family, but we cannot be Christ's follower, His disciple, and elevate family above the commands or service to Christ. Jesus made that statement to us here, didn't He? I would ask you to appreciate then that that often can put you and me into an interesting set of considerations. There are times that family members may ask of you and me what contradicts this book. And yet in love and fidelity to Christ, we must put service to Jesus above the insistence of a family member. They drop by on a Sunday evening at five minutes after five. And they want to visit. And so what do you and I do? Do we absent ourselves of the services of the church? Or do we kindly say, if you'll come back tomorrow, I'll be happy to visit with you. But I have an appointment with my Savior and I've got to go. What choice do you and I make? That's just an example of a whole host of others that might well come before your mind and mine. Our service to the Master must be first. Notice how that makes implications on a host of other choices in life. That weighs heavily upon one's considerations of a mate, doesn't it? To think about marrying someone who then does not have the same Lord in life as you do. And think about the difficulties and the problems that's going to cause. Submitting yourselves to one who does not look to the Master, that's going to cause nothing but misery and pathetic hardship all through life. No wonder, among other things, Jesus says, here, if you've got to hate father or mother, brother and sister, son and daughter, if you're going to be my disciple. That's not an easy teaching, is it? I'm sure they were as startled by it then as you and I can be today. But you'll notice that's the way of Jesus. Now, with that in mind, you'll notice at the bottom of the, that very slide, there is one other feature that is included in the statement of that same verse. We have not emphasized it, but now the time has come. You'll notice in verse 26, he not only mentioned father and mother and brother and sister and wife... He also said, yea, and his own life also. Now, I suppose all of us have a love for ourselves. We have come through the nature of our life upon this earth to appreciate our perspective, our viewpoint, our talents, skills, and abilities. And quite frankly, we're rather proud of them in many cases, aren't we? And we rightly ought to be. But you'll notice Jesus said, if you don't love yourself in an appropriate way, 
And you notice you've got to love Jesus more. But if you don't have that particular attribute, then you too can't be my disciple. When you and I begin to think too much of ourselves, when we elevate our desires and our dispositions above the commandments of Scripture, we've erred greatly. Hadn't the Sadducees done that in Matthew 22? Maybe as we think about that, how was Paul able to state that beautiful matter? In Philippians chapter 3, he said, Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and to count them but dung that I may win Christ. Paul said, I've happily given everything up that I might be the servant, the disciple of Christ. You and I then can give consideration to the same. This whole life that's mine, whatever abilities God has given me, may you and I use them as the wonderful stewards of Him. Not to bring the glory to ourselves, not to bring the credit to ourselves, but to simply strive to be His disciple. He cannot be my disciple. So far, verse 26 has been the first matter of our discussion, but there's more to be said. Let us look also at this one. Jesus in the next verse continued this discussion and He said, And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So you'll notice one who does not bear his cross, He says, cannot be my disciple. Let's you and I discuss for a moment what's involved in bearing the cross. May I say, His cross. You'll notice it like this. Literally, that word to bear brings to mind the original word in Greek that has the thought of to endure, to bear, to put up with or to tolerate. May I ask you to notice, Jesus did carefully say to bear His cross, and the, that adjective He is refers to the individual under discussion. He isn't talking here about the cross on which He would die. Each and every one of us have our own challenges and difficulties in life. Life brings it that way, doesn't it? It brings its problems and its hardships. And sometimes they are weighty, aren't they? Jesus here said, Whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. You and I, as we face those crosses in our life, we're reminded in Galatians 6 verse 5, so then every one of us ought to bear his own cross. We all are going to face those problems. That's just a part of living in this flesh, isn't it? Sometimes they're health related. Sometimes they're not. But whatever their nature and whatever their thrust and whatever the characteristic of them may be, we must tolerate them in the sense of not letting them bring us to unfaithfulness. We must not allow them to cause us to do what we shouldn't, say what we shouldn't, go where we shouldn't. We need to be faithful until death. Isn't it amazing in light of those considerations that you and I could observe? Isn't it interesting that this fits into those excuses that Jesus had just taught about? Remember, there was a gentleman who said, I've just bought a piece of ground and I've got to go and see it. Are you going to tell me you bought a piece of ground and you never saw it before you bought it? The man was making an excuse. Surely he had already seen it. He was trying to offer an excuse to get out of going in answer to the invitation he'd accepted. 
on the day that you and I obey the gospel, we made a mighty profession in the hearing of some witnesses that day. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Are we going to be faithful to it or not? And there's no excuses. Jesus won't accept excuses. Notice the second one. I've bought five yoke of oxen. I've got to go prove them. You mean you've bought them and you did not prove them before you bought them? Then that's foolishness on your part. Again, an excuse. I've married a wife. Please excuse me, I can't come. Well, may I say, if your wife won't support you in being true to the word you've given, then you made a mistake first. But may we appreciate there's a great deal of lesson in this matter of excuses, isn't there? I suppose we, are, we tend to make excuses on occasions, don't we? We really could do differently, speak differently, act differently, but we offer excuse. I'm tired. The day today was hard at work. The demands of the boss were many and varied. And so we use as an excuse to do what we really know we shouldn't do. Maybe, maybe we'd be more cautious. With every temptation, there is a way of escape. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. We are assured of it. And so when there's a temptation to use excuse to justify a sin or justify inappropriate activity, may we not succumb to the temptation, but may we not fall to the excuse. May we be true to the Word. May we be true to that which the Christ demands. As you come near the bottom of that slide, there are so many verses that you and I could quickly recollect about the duties that come your way and mine. Duties of husbands and fathers, duties of wives and mothers, duties of Christians as a whole. Christ does not accept excuses for why I don't do this. If I don't do it, doesn't it bring to mind verses like James 4.17? To him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. Notice there's no word excuse in that verse. If I don't do what He has given me the ability and opportunity to do, then no excuse will excuse me from it. It's a sin on my part. May you and I notice then that in the midst of a passage like this one, Jesus has said, I must bear my cross. Though it may be challenging and hard, I must bear it. With the opportunity of considering that, you'll notice at the bottom... Jesus here, notice, asserts the bearing of my own cross. I can't give it to you to bear for me. Now you may encourage me and you may help me and you may offer lovely smiles of edification for me. And surely I can do the same for you. That's one of the lovely features of the Christian brotherhood, isn't it? We encourage one another. But I must still bear that cross. You cannot encourage me to the point that I still mustn't make decisions relative to my own faithfulness. Maybe in light of those things, we're ready to look at the next consideration. We've seen that if I love father or mother or, yea, any family member more than Christ, I can't be His disciple. And if I'm not willing to bear my own cross, I can't be His disciple. What's next? Jesus also said in verse 27, "...and come after me." Bear His cross and come after me. When you and I then proceed to consider what next is a vital ingredient to being His disciple, it involves coming after Him. He is the leader, isn't He? He is our forerunner that leads us to heaven in the words of Hebrews 6, 19. 
and 20. Inasmuch as He is the forerunner, doesn't it bring to mind so swiftly the words of Paul himself, Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. 1 Corinthians 11.1 1. Paul thus with sweetness could encourage others to follow him to the extent that and to the degree that he followed Christ. You and I have to come after him. Let us develop that somewhat like this. You and I are appreciative of that promise delivered in Revelation 14.4. Follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. The Lamb there is Christ Jesus our Lord, and you and I are thus very urgently commanded to follow Him. Am I following Him? Are you following Him? That's easy, perhaps in mind, on a Sunday morning to make statement of yes. What about tomorrow afternoon? What about Thursday afternoon? What about Saturday morning? When we find ourselves away from the church building... Are we still following Him? Is your example in mine a pristine one of godliness such that others can see Jesus living in us and thereby appreciate the faith and the opportunity of God seen in our life? Challenging consideration, isn't it? Come after me. Didn't Jesus say in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I suppose we each could remember in Scripture some who made statement of following Him, but they didn't. Maybe none comes more quickly to mind than that statement of Titus 1.16. They profess that they know God, but in works they deny Him, being abominable and disobedient unto every good work reprobate. There were some people who spoke a good game. I love the Lord. I following Him, but if you look at the works of their life, it told a completely different record. They were hypocrites. May that not be you or me. May our life be an open one that does follow Jesus wherever He goes. No wonder at the bottom of that slide, it will do us well to appreciate up front. And we need to make sure that those who obey the gospel realize this up front. The walkway of Christ does not lead to worldly fame. It does not lead to worldly wealth. And by itself, it does not lead to worldly notoriety. It doesn't. Now those things may by God be given as blessings, but following Christ by itself doesn't produce them. And so often rather we find that following Christ will make us such that others won't appreciate the things we like. They'll take a different political stand than we do. They'll often take a different stance in the world than we do, and they won't appreciate it even a little bit. Well, that's okay. For if we're the servants of men, we can't be the servants of Christ. Galatians 1 verse 10. Surely then as we appreciate the need to follow the Christ. Look at verse number 11 of this same chapter please. For whosoever exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. The very minute that you and I, in the words of perhaps a grandparent, start getting the big head and we start appreciating the willingness to follow ourselves and not Christ, we are in bad condition, aren't we? I must always submit my will to His. 
my thinking to His, my actions, my language, my life to His. And if I ever start putting my will above His, I cannot be His disciple. In many ways, that again is a lesson challenging to so very many, for we are taught, it seems, from an early age by culture and otherwise, you follow your desires wherever they lead you, and you allow yourself to be the sole guide and force, and yet the Christian bows in submission to one greater than he. So far, three who cannot be my disciple. The one who loves family more than me, the one who will not bear his own cross, and as we've seen here, the one who won't come after him. That great invitation then means that you and I must respond. And that's why we, of course, offer an invitation at the close of any lesson. Jesus invites any to come. But you'll notice there's one more. It was the very last verse that Andrew read earlier, verse 33. Let's use the last element of the lesson to consider that one as well. So likewise Jesus said, Whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. Forsake all that he hath. Here are just a few thoughts I would ask you to consider about this. And may I say that it does follow beautifully on the heels of a, a set of verses that were read a moment ago, but time will fail me to develop them more thoroughly. Jesus had just taught about the cost of discipleship and the importance of counting the cost. He said, what about a man who starts to build a tower? But after he starts it, he doesn't have the funds to complete it. He says, all who look at it will mock him because he started, but he did not count the cost to see whether he would have the means to finish it. And what about the king who decides to start a war or engage in a war, but he has 10,000 troops, the enemy has 20,000. And so after he begins to realize that, he has to send an ambassador and beg for conditions of peace. Jesus said he should have counted the cost before he started. It is in that context we notice the passage of verse 33. Whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. We understand that here he isn't talking about people per se. He's talking about possessions and things. All that he has. He cannot be my disciple unless he forsakes that. That word forsake is the word renounce. It is the word in essence to turn one's back on in the sense of not allowing it to occupy the largest control or mastery you can't be mastered by those things that you have. You've got to forsake them, using them in submission to a power greater than they. It isn't wrong to have money or to have possessions. What's wrong is when they become our God. We have basically become guilty of idolatry if we allow them to be our God. We all understand how often it can be that things can have a controlling emphasis if we allow them to do so, they can control our time, our energy, our efforts. They can control large portions of our very life and being and squeeze Jesus and God completely out if that is what's allowed to happen. Jesus said, you cannot be my disciple unless you forsake all that you have. It reminds us of the rich young ruler, doesn't it? With such excitement in Luke 18, he came to Jesus and said, Good Master, what good thing should I do that I may inherit eternal life? Jesus said, Keep the commandments. 
And he said, all those I've kept from my youth upward, Jesus said, one more thing you lack. You go and sell all you have and give it to the poor and come follow me. Luke 18, verses 18 and following. The text says he went away sorrowfully, for he had great possessions. Verses 23 and 24. May you and I notice, there was one whose possessions he worshipped above his service to God. They were everything apparently to him, at least more than his service to Jesus. Jesus said, you've got to forsake those things. Sell them. That's what that man needed to do. Today, what about you and me? Do you and I serve our th- the things we own more than we serve Jesus? Do they dictate what we do say? Do they dictate the features and characteristics of life? If we do that, we can't be Jesus' disciple. No wonder at the bottom of that slide, I would ask you to notice we've looked today at four such that He cannot be my disciple. And I think we've been impressed with how timeless these thoughts are. I suppose every generation until the end of time, will face issues that family members can exert influences and cause us to not be faithful if we allow it to be so. Or we and I can be in position to where demands of the, our own life we can elevate inappropriately. Or we may find ourselves in laziness or slothfulness, shirking responsibilities and not being as disciples as we should. Or lastly, we can notice... We can elevate our things, what we own, greater than our service to Him. If we do any of these, we can't be His faithful disciple. I hope today as you analyze your life, and I do the same for me, that we will ask time and again on an ongoing basis, He cannot be my disciple. And if you find yourself in that condition, and if I do, may we today make the appropriate changes. It will require repentance a change of disposition, a change of heart that leads to a change in life. If we could be of help to you today, maybe you are one who has never obeyed Christ initially. You need to believe in Jesus, John 8, 24. You need to repent of your sins, Luke 13, 3. You must confess Him, Matthew 10, 32 and 33. And you must be baptized. That's commanded in Mark 16, 16. If we could help you in that way today, don't delay another moment. If you have become, though, His servant, you were a disciple at one time and a faithful one at that. Maybe at this moment, in light of what Jesus said here, you've begun to question some things. If you need prayers of strength and prayers of fortitude and encouragement, why not come before us today and let us help you? Let us pray for you. If your sins have been of a public nature and you'd like to confess them, we'd be happy to pray to God for you. If today we could be of assistance to you, let us all strive to be His disciple and not be in these categories. And if we could help you today, why not come now as together we stand and sing?